Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. You know, how can I be in real estate without putting my time into real estate? And that's what I've done ever since. I went from one extreme to the other, full-time active, full-time passive. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, we've got a guest, Travis Watts. He's a full-time passive investor. He's been investing in real estate since 2009 in multifamily, single-family, and vacation rentals. Travis is also the Director of Investor Relations at Ashcroft Capital, and he dedicates his time to educating others who are looking to be more hands-off in real estate. So, Travis, thanks for joining today. Happy to have you here, man. Thanks so much for having me. Sounds like we got the perfect audience for today's topic. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's exciting to have you on. I mean, there's not a lot of people that can say that they're full-time or professional passive investors. I think that's what a lot of us aspire to be. And so I think hearing, you know, your journey of like how you got there, tips to help others get there, I think will be really powerful today. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's start at the top. Why don't you just tell folks a little bit more about yourself and maybe why don't you give us some insight on what what led you into real estate investing in the first place? Sure. Yeah. I think a couple things. Way back when, well, my whole childhood, (laughs) I was raised by two very frugal parents. So money actually was a topic of discussion my whole childhood, except for investing was not. Neither of my parents were real estate investors in the beginning. My dad and stepmom eventually got into real estate in their late 50s. But most of my childhood was all about, you know, penny pinching and using coupons, living below your means, you know, that kind of stuff, how to save, save, save. So thankful that I had that experience and that upbringing. However, I had to really get into some self-education to learn the investing side. So that started with books. For me, that started with Rich Dad Prophecy, which is not a common book you hear a lot. Most people will talk about Rich Dad Poor Dad as their gateway Mm -hmm. book into this industry. Rich Dad Prophecy is really, I think it was written around the year 2000 by Robert Kiyosaki. And he talks about how we're going to have this major 
stock market, specifically stock market meltdown, and basically just don't be in stocks. <laughs> I mean, that's all I really took from it. I was reading that in like high school, and this was all beyond me anyhow, but I, that was really my only practical takeaway. So I really took that advice. That's the only advice that I had, literally. So I did have a little bit of stock holdings and that was supposed to go towards college, which I ended up getting a scholarship, not needing that. So I saved it. And that's what ended up being my first down payment in real estate. So I think I knew I wanted to one day be in real estate. I just didn't know how or when or what or why, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what happened was I got started in 2009, as you pointed out. So right after the big collapse, maybe that was the one Robert was talking about in the book. I don't know. He never gives any specific dates. But anyway, I'm looking at this house out in Colorado where I'm wanting to kind of plant some roots there. And, you know, it was previously like $165,000 home and it was on the market for $95,000. So I thought, well, if nothing else, a significant discount from what it recently was. And the government was handing out an $8,000 tax credit that year that you could actually keep. You didn't have to repay it like the previous years. So I was combining those two facts with the fact that it was next to a college campus as well, Colorado State University. And so I thought, hey, you know, I just got out of college. I know how many people need a place to rent, right? I could at least house hack this thing, right? And then that makes it a pretty conservative approach to getting into real estate. So that's what I did. I did end up house hacking it. And I think that was my first eye-opener to passive income was somebody handing me a $600 check and then knowing that my mortgage was 640 was a pretty cool feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was basically living for free right out of college. So I just wanted to scale that up. I just want to make that so much bigger. I was so inspired. I wasn't making a lot of money at my W-2 at the time. And so from there, I dedicated to real estate. And the first thing I knew, well, the first thing I wanted to do was make more W-2 income so that I could put more into real estate. So I ended up working in the oil field. I did 14-hour days, 98-hour work weeks, out of state, away from home, Saudi Arabia, Middle East. I did a lot of crazy stuff that just took all my time. And that's really where I started learning the value of my time, you know, because I didn't have any. I couldn't vacation. I couldn't really date. I couldn't, I just didn't have time Mm -hmm. for anything. I could barely do my laundry. So by 2015, I had done a whole bunch of hands-on single family. I did fix and flips. I did vacation rentals, as you pointed out. I did house hacks. I did owner-occupied two-year flips, you know, renovations, whatever you want to call them. And by, yeah, so five, six years in, it's 2015 now, and I've just burned myself out. Too much W-2 work, not enough time to dedicate to it, lots of hands-on self-managed stuff going on. And I thought, man, I love real estate. I love it. I love it. I love the cash flow. I love the tax advantages, but I just can't do it. I can't scale it up. You know, how am I ever going to get to 50 or 100 of these houses? And so that's where I discovered passive investing, had to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. I started leveraging other people, finding mentors and coaches and listening to podcasts and attending seminars to learn what syndications were, you know, private placements, you know, how can I be in real estate without putting my time into real estate? And that's what I've done ever since. I went from one extreme to the other, full-time active, full-time passive. And now I just help educate people in the realm of passive investing, you know, mostly real estate based, but just this concept of what I call time freedom and, and having more flexibility over your time, more options as you build your cash flow income streams up. Mm -hmm. 
That's really interesting. So you got to the point, I think where a lot of people do with single families, right? Where you say, you start to look out and say, okay, I'm going to need 50, 100, 200 of these houses to get where you actually want to be into into your financial goals, right? And you start to realize, well, that's unattainable. I mean, I'm already managing what I what I have, let alone a hundred more, right? It's just it's not a scalable model. Right, exactly. And I think that a couple things there, a lot of folks really don't get past, say, 10 properties in the first place. So that's kind of where it really starts getting tough, you know. And yeah, I mean, it's just, and you don't know what you don't know. So you assume, you you always think, well, I do anyway, best case scenario. You know, like, oh, I'm just going to put a tenant in there. They're just going to hand me a check and it's going to go great for 24 months and I won't have any problems. But (laughs) inevitably, there's always problems. There's roofs and there's water heaters and there's HOAs and there's all kinds of stuff you got to deal with. And and it just can't be 100% passive. It just can't be. And the last thing I did was get a property manager. And now I'm dealing with two sides of it, right? The property manager is asking, what do you want to do about this? What about this? How do you want to? And then the tenants are still coming to me anyway, because they knew Mm me. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like now I just made it worse and I'm paying more of my cash flow out because of it. (laughs) That's crazy. So So you you decided, like you said, that 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 wasn't the model for you. You you decided though that you wanted to take a step back and what led you to what you're doing now and, and tell the folks what you are doing now, what you're investing in. Yeah, exactly. I really... I attribute self-education to the culprit here. So in in 2015, I knew I had to make this shift. I knew I had to make a change for two reasons. One, I didn't like the oil field job. And two, I didn't think it would last anyway because oil is so boom and bust. I just figured one day I'm going to be sitting on my butt unemployed, you know, (laughs) so I need to be thinking ahead right now. And two, I couldn't see scaling that single family portfolio as we discussed. So I knew I had to do something different there. So 2015, I said, look, this is a self-education year. I read 52 books that year, so a book a week. And it sounds cool, but it really wasn't cool. It, it was information overload. It's like sound cool. a, a fire hose <laughs> in your face. You can't possibly obtain that much information, but I did do it. And so, you know, and, and like I said, podcasts and mentors and blah, blah, blah. The biggest thing that helped was finding real people that actually exists, that actually invest in multifamily and private placements and syndications and networking with them and saying, what's your experience been? And would you mind Mm -hmm. sharing kind of, you know, that past performance and why did you get into this? And just learning from actual human beings made the biggest impact. So did a lot of back testing, thought, hey, if I'm going to invest my time, energy and money into something this seriously, like nearly 100% of my net worth, then I better know what I'm doing to an extent and I better find an asset class that's going to last, right? I don't want to be chasing the shiny object and today I'm into cryptocurrency and next year I'm into who knows what's next, you know, the next app, TikTok or something. So, you know, multifamily has been around obviously forever. We all need a place to live. I invest mostly to your question in value add multifamily, say 200 to 600 unit, mostly class B properties, sometimes some C's nationwide, but I I definitely have my preferred states that I like to invest in. And yeah, I enjoy being a limited partner. I enjoy vetting out a team and a sponsorship group and then making that decision for myself, visiting the property sometimes to walk through it, touch it, feel it, see it. I like real estate for those reasons. It's a tangible asset. And then just, you know, here's 50K and now I'm off the hook and passive for three, five, seven years. It just depends. And I like that model for myself. And I come to find 
lot of busy professionals out there that this is a great model for, you know, whether it's a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, attorney, an athlete, mm-hmm. a business owner, an entrepreneur, the list goes on and on. Highly paid individuals that are career focused, right? Because they're passionate about what they do. Is it realistic that a dentist or a doctor should be taking their weekends off and flipping houses? You know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. for everyone to be active in the space. And so for that reason, these LP deals exist and, and I love them. That's great. And so going back to something you said, you said you invest mainly in B and C class multifamily. Yeah. So why is that? Yeah. Came from a combination of a couple things. A couple mentors in my network that have been kind of mostly in that space for like 10, 15, 20 years. So I really got a lot of like feel for that. That was kind of coincidence that those were the folks that allowed you know, me to be their mentee. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that was nice. And that just happened to be what they invested in. And and they were totally independent of one another, didn't even know each other, but that was cool. So I got kind of that firsthand inside look at that niche. And then two, I just started doing a lot of research. I started, obviously, we all know what happened to real estate and stocks and all this in in the great recession and 08, 09. I used the example of the house I bought, right? So I saw single family and what happened. And I thought, man, how did multifamily hold up? You know, was it any better? Was it worse? And, you know, statistically speaking, it outperformed, you know, single family. It outperformed the stock market. It's not recession proof by any means. It's recession resistant more so than other asset classes. So that's kind of what led me to that niche. Plus, I just, for some reason, not everything clicks with me, but real estate, in the single family value add and the multifamily value add, it just clicks with me. It just makes perfect sense to me why I would be in that asset class, how it functions. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, obviously, but you know, like, I don't know, I can't really explain. It's kind of an abstract thing. But when I was a kid, I really wanted to play guitar. That was like my passion. But man, I took like two lessons and I couldn't play one chord. I mean, I was so uncoordinated. I just couldn't do it. Picked up drumming and it just snapped. I took like maybe six months of lessons and just branched out on my own. I formed different bands. I mean, it just, it just clicked. And that's how I Mm -hmm. feel about real estate. That's why it takes so much self-reflection. What's right for you. You know, what I'm saying right now may not be right for everybody. And and quite frankly, it's just not right for everybody, but there are a lot of folks that it can add a lot of value to. And I just want to help widen that exposure of education around the topic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is extremely helpful. And I mean, and that's the asset that in the class that I choose to invest in as well. But I just, I like to hear other people give their reasoning too, because it, it may be different, but for many of the same reasons that you said. And, you know, as you, so you've experienced, you know, with, with your own personal investments. I mean, we talked about the benefits of passive and active from a time standpoint, but just mm-hmm. as you're making these these alternative investments, right? Different than the stocks and bonds you can buy. And what are the benefits of this type of investment? What have you experienced through your own investing? Yeah, I think that (laughs) it's funny. I always laugh when I think about some of the first like flips that I did on my own, you know, not having a network, not having connections, not having mentors, not having read books on this, just really winging it, like really... Mm -hmm in a sketchy way, <laughs> winging it. <laughs> and the first flip I was doing, I had to leverage my parents for some help. I was trying to save money on contractors for some of the easier tasks. And I just remember <laughs> my mom was in the house and she goes, 
where's your drill? I said, I don't have a drill. I said, I have some screwdrivers. <laughs> like just the realization, I didn't even own an electric drill and I'm flipping a house. You know what I mean? Like it just, it was such a, <laughs> a misfit. It was ridiculous. Wasn't your skill set, yeah. right? Oh my gosh, man. Yeah. And so just <laughs> embarrassing to, and crazy to think about. But the point is because it was me, this is again, this was my individual you know, realization here. I wasn't a handy person. I'm not a contractor. I didn't come from a construction background. I didn't have great connections there. So I'm having to outsource all this stuff, which is eating away my profit margins. And some of those deals I did, you know, you look at the work and time you put in and it's like, wow, I made, you know, 16K or something, you know, and it just wasn't worth it, man. It just wasn't worth it. Anybody who was a true professional in that same market could have had a 70,000 profit margin. I got 17 or whatever. So just a self-reflection, you know, and I like the idea that let me do what I enjoy, what I'm good at, what I'm passionate about, and then let the true professionals do what they do. And I'm all about, you know, leveraging other people's expertise and skills and knowledge. And so that's kind of what led me to it, pros and cons. So you're using other people's skills and knowledge. And then what type of I mean, what are the returns that you expect from an investment? I mean, what type of returns have you experienced? What can people expect to get back? They give $50,000 in an investment like this. You know, what do people right. expect? Yeah, obviously, since 2015, it's changed. And now we're in COVID. So people are being a lot more conservative. And some deals just, quite frankly, aren't that good of deals. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so cash flows come down, returns have come down. But in general, my whole portfolio, I've invested with over 14 different groups. So I'm not talking about any specific operator yeah. or anything like that. But 80% of that portfolio is value add, multifamily, private placement syndications. I'd say rough numbers here, like 50% of the profits are coming out of cash flow. I like stabilized assets that are 85% plus occupancy upon takeover and hopefully remain that for the whole period of, of hold so that you have that cash flow. So I'd say 50% over say a five-year period is coming from that. It might be in the range of, I don't know, six to 10% cash flow, you know, somewhere, something like that, paid out either monthly or quarterly, as people obviously pay their rent and other income generating items on the property. The second half would come from potential equity upside through forced appreciation, you're renovating units and landscaping and the amenities and rebranding the asset sometimes. And you're just making the community a better place literally on both sides, you know, from investor and resident. And so hopefully as you move five years down the road, rents have come up, the community is a better place, occupancies increase. So now you can sell and hopefully get some, you know, long-term capital gains, you know, some equity there. And that'd be the other half of the coin. So if you take 50%, 50%, then that means if, if you're six to 10% cash flow, then you might be 12 to 20%. IRR, internal rate of return, kind of a total averaged out annualized return. But of course, no guarantees in any of that. I'm just saying that's kind of been my experience in the portfolio. Some deals outperform those by a decent margin and some underperformed, you know? And so that's why, you know, I believe in diversifying. Another great thing about being a passive is I've got properties all over the United States with all different sponsorship groups. And that's a beautiful thing because I got a little uncomfortable having 100% of my portfolio on the front range of Colorado in a 30 to 40 mile radius, you know, almost 100% of my net worth. And that really freaked me out at one point when I really started thinking about risk. And so yeah, something to consider. 
I think that diversification is a huge benefit. And so now, you know, we're in COVID, as you said, things are a little bit different. What returns are you expecting at this point? You know, what would make you invest in a deal? I think, yeah, it's a good question. So I'm of the mindset. So different people will have different philosophies, both on the sponsorship side and the LP side as to, you know, I speak with people week to week being a investor relations, B just, I like networking with people in, in the real estate space. I hear everything from, Hey, this is a crazy time and more or less, you know, I'm fearful and I'm going to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. I'm going to let this thing blow over and I might start investing next year or 2022. We'll see after the election, there's always something to wait on. Right? So there's that mindset. I'm of the mindset that the current deals that we're seeing today are a direct reflection of what's happening today economically. So if COVID has caused a 5% occupancy drop and a collections drop, you should probably expect at least maybe a 5% discount on that property, possibly more. You know, it just kind of depends. But my point is that to me, there's always a deal to be had, whether we're in a, a booming market, a declining market, a stable market. So I've continued investing. I've done about four deals since March as an LP. And that's just my mentality. I know some very, 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 very smart people with super crazy track records that told me in 2015, one guy in particular, a pretty well-known sponsor out there, I won't name him of course, but he tells him, I'm on the phone. I said, please put me on your list. I really want to do a deal with you, blah, blah, blah. I'd done my, my due diligence to a point. He says, Travis, <clears throat> he said, I don't think we're going to be doing any deals this year or next year, he said, because 2016 is going to be the biggest market collapse that you and I have seen probably in our whole lifetimes. And I thought, wow, that is some scary stuff. Well, fast forward through today, he has been on the sidelines since 2015. Meanwhile, you know, I've doubled my portfolio. So I'm not yeah. saying I'm, I'm better or smarter. It's just a different philosophy. And that's not sure. one that I buy into. <laughs> so Sure. So, so as you're investing, I mean, is there a at this point, is there a cash on cash return that you're, you're looking for an oh, IRR that you're looking for? I mean, are there certain, what are your metrics that you're looking for as you're evaluating? I, mean, I know there's a lot, but just from a return standpoint, what are you looking for? Yeah. And something, you know, part of my whole philosophy is more about passive income and cash flow, but that doesn't have to even mean real estate just to kind of zoom out a little higher level. I'm invested in other asset classes and I'm in self-storage and ATM machines and first lien notes and distressed debt funds and all these things that cash flow. So what I'm always doing is, and I've always said this, if real estate, for whatever reason, gets too compressed to where the numbers stop making sense. In other words, I feel like I'm taking too much risk right now for the type of return that I'm getting. I stop investing in that asset and I move to something else, you know? So like in a traditional sense, what that might mean is let's say your cash flow on real estate came down in general to 4% a year. Well, I could buy a muni bond, you know, at least historically a few years ago at 4% tax-free with a lot more certainty and a lot less risk, possibly even insured, you know? So why would I be taking on risk in real estate when I could do muni bonds, you know? So, sure. you know, just as a general, you know, idea. So to answer your question, I always look for preferred returns. That's something I really like. I like the alignment of interest, putting the LPs first. I'm not looking for deals that are pushing the numbers, trying to say, look how great and high these numbers are right now during COVID. I would rather a group you know, half of them or something, you know, and just say, look, year one might be 
you know, pretty low. Maybe, maybe not, but we're going to underwrite for that just in case. We think we might get seven or 8% cash flow. We're going to put six, you know, something like that. So what I'm looking for more than ever is being conservative in the underwriting, right? So the entry cap rate versus the reversion cap rate or exit cap rate, the break-even occupancy, the type of debt structure. I'm just looking for conservative underwriting. And what I'm seeing right now is a lot of year one cash flow looking really, really low, but that's not necessarily performance-based. That's projection-based, right? That's just theoretical that things could get worse or could take a turn or whatever. So, So I'm okay with that. Right now, I just take that as... It is what it is. That's the times that we're living in. And I don't think that's going to be a long-term thing. And so for me, it still makes sense to invest in multifamily. Gotcha. So you talked a little bit about vetting and things that you're looking for and conservatism. So you mentioned some terms for folks, but can you expand on those a little bit on what are those things, those conservative levers that oh, you're sure. looking at and, and yeah. what are the metrics that you consider conservative? Sure. Yeah. So I do my best verbally of these descriptions here, but by the way, we can point this out later, but there is a passive investor guide that I have that goes into like the exact terminology and how the ins and outs work of all this stuff, but I'll I'll butcher through it right now and do my best. So when I talked about a cap rate, so let's say, so a cap rate would be, you know, if you're going to pay all cash for a property, right, based on the current occupancy, performance, rent collections, let's say it's a five cap. So you might expect roughly a 5% a year return on your money, right, without any debt or leverage. So when I'm looking at, let's say we are buying in a five cap today in 2020, what I'm looking for in the underwriting is that five years down the road, let's say it's a five and a half cap or a six cap or something like that, meaning that the market conditions have softened, right? The economy's gotten slightly worse. And even with that factored in, you still can look at the projected returns and say, am I okay with this or not? So what you're wanting is obviously not the cap rate to be higher in the future. It's just a form of being conservative to say, well, it might be, we might be in a recession in five years. And the fact is that nobody knows. And so it's good to know that even with things kind of declining, you can still make money in that type of environment. So that would be something I look at there. The break-even occupancy I mentioned would be Simple example, if you had a 100-unit apartment building and a 70% break-even occupancy, at any given time, 30 residents could either A, not pay their rent, or B, move out, and you could have vacancy, and you could still operate that property without having to take a loss you know, to the investors. So that's a good metric. Something to think about, too, with single-family and duplexes and quads is you've got more risk there, right? With one tenant and one home, they move out and you're 0% occupied, you know? So there's a, now you've got all the the mortgage and the debt. And I mean, you just go from winning to losing overnight. And so I kind of like the wiggle room. It's a little bit slower moving there. And last, when I talked about the debt structure, what I like to see is obviously interest rates are at historic lows right now. So that's kind of a given that you're probably going to get a decent interest rate. But more importantly, Let's say I'm investing in a five-year business plan. We're going to go in, we're going to renovate, add value, sell, five years. Mm -hmm. I like to see, for example, agency debt from like Fannie, Freddie, something like that. It doesn't have to be, but I like agency debt as an investor. We'll say anywhere from three to five years of interest-only payments. That helps with the cash flow and whatnot. You're not having to pay down the principal on it. And then 
two would be a longer term to the debt than what the business plan actually is. So maybe you have a 10-year term on a five-year business plan. And the importance of that is, as we've talked about with the exit cap rate, in five years, if we're in the next Great Depression, well, what if you can't get out of the deal profitably? You know, what if you're kind of underwater temporarily on the value? You don't want to be forced to sell or forced to refi and and take a hit. So it gives you a five-year period where you can still figure it out. (laughs) You know, you've got some Mm -hmm. hopefully fixed rate debt. That's the other thing. And a little bit of wiggle room to the business plan rather than doing short-term loans or bridge loans or something. There's a time and place for that stuff. But in general, with the types of things I do, doesn't really make sense to have that type of debt structure. Gotcha. Thanks. So looking at reversion cap rates, break-even occupancy, debt structure, right? Those are all all great things to look at and all, all ways to build conservatism in. So absolutely that's awesome. How about from you know, you mentioned that you've invested with, I think it was 14 different sponsors. Is that right? right? Yeah. So how do you go about picking your sponsors? Or picking your yeah. investments, let's say. <laughs> It was a little bit messy in the beginning. I won't lie there. (laughs) 2015, I knew enough to be dangerous. I didn't know enough to be successful. (laughs) So, So what I did, it was kind of funny. Again, you look back and it's always laughable stuff. But I started looking locally for sponsorship groups in my own backyard, so to speak, which was a mistake because most of the key players out there come to find later didn't exist in that market, you know? So found some kind of mom and pop syndicators, which is cool and nothing wrong with that. But what I learned was I put way too much emphasis on the deal, like the pro forma. And I'm thinking, wow, look at these potential returns. This looks great. And, yeah. and I like the people as people, But the fact was they didn't have experience. They didn't have track record. They hadn't really done this before. I think one group had done maybe two deals and I don't know, the other may have been their first deal. I didn't ask good questions. I didn't ask enough questions. And so what happened was, thankfully, we were in a nice little market cycle and we bought at a good price and we bought a good property and we bought in a good market, which was not the local market, by the way. But the sponsorship team can't give them any credit. They pretty much made every bad decision you could make. And so we didn't lose money, thank goodness, because the other two were in play, right? The, The property and the price and the market, three things. But we pretty much received more or less half of the returns that we probably should have, right? Because a lot of things were mismanaged. The business plan was supposed to be five years and about a year and a half in, they just cut ties with it, said, you know, there's a lot of work, a lot of unknowns. We're just, we're getting out. <laughs> we got some mm-hmm. equity in it. Let's get out while, while the getting's good. And so that taught me a lot about sponsors and how important the sponsorship team is. And truthfully, to me, at the end of the day, what are you taking a bet on? It's really the people. It's the team. It's their ability to execute the business plan that they're putting in front of you and saying, this is what we think we can do. You're betting on them and the property management group too. So my hierarchy now is the sponsorship team. The market would be second to me and the deal would be last with the idea that you put the first two in play that the third hopefully kind of falls into place, but you still want to do your due diligence, obviously on the deal itself. Yeah. But I just had that so backwards, man. And unfortunately I learned some lessons there, but it led me to invest with some better operators with more experience and track record. So, yeah, I think that's really helpful because I think that's the approach. I mean, it's the approach I took for sure. 
So I, I've done, I'm up to, I guess, 11 passive investments now. Okay, cool. And I actively in, invest as well now, but there's still a place for, always be a place for kind of diversifying passively. So yeah. going back though, really similar experience to you. I knew enough to be dangerous. <laughs> Part of my passive investing was, I looked at it as that learning experience as, okay, I'm going to invest in some of these deals. And in doing that, I'm going to get to see behind the curtain a little bit, understand how this all works. Right. Yeah. So a little bit of, of a different reason for doing it, but very similar approach where I knew just enough to be dangerous. I knew I wanted to invest in multifamily real estate. I didn't know a whole lot more outside of that. And luckily I did get with some good sponsors at the beginning. But like you said, it starts with the deal, right? And you're just, you start getting on these people's lists and you're just getting these deals and you're like, you pick the deals apart. Well, you know, like you said, and when I look back and like, did I even ask the sponsor a, like a question about themselves or, or what they do? You know, it was, it was all thinking that I knew the little bit of underwriting that I knew at the time and, you know, and I could a- ask these questions and show them I know what I'm talking about. But really, if you think about it, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Start with the sponsor understand. I like the way that you put that, you know, who are you really betting on, right? You're betting on that team and their ability to execute. And I think if you look at it that way, it can really simplify things for you too, because sometimes you get on enough of these deal lists, you have so many deals coming in, you start to say, okay, well, how do I know if I want to do this one or this one or this, right? I mean, you could have 12 sitting in front of you. Well, if you've done the work up front to say, okay, well, these are the teams I like and the teams I believe that can execute. I think that can simplify things for you too, from an investment standpoint. Yeah, 100%. And another thing that I always mention too is figuring out what your own criteria is. You know, mm-hmm. again, what makes sense to you? What do you understand? Biggest mistake I ever made in investing was investing in a fund with a structure I really didn't understand. It wasn't real estate, but it came out of an investment group that I'm in. And it was kind of this experimental idea and this thing. And I just didn't realize how many people were involved in different groups, you know, and and it's just, it got complicated and we lost money. We just lost a lot of money in it. And so, and then it just, man, it just, it hit me just right in the face. And it's like, invest in what you know and understand what makes sense, you know, and that one just didn't, it made sense enough to where obviously, I mean, I wasn't being too foolish with it. I did my due diligence and I asked a lot of questions, but at the end of the day, it wasn't actually the group I invested with. It was somebody else that managed a portion of the fund from a whole nother state that wasn't really even talked about in in the business plan. And so it was a little bit out of my control in a sense, but yeah, it just made me realize how much I love real estate because it just makes logical sense to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So with everything that you've learned now, now when you're approached by or you seek out a new group and you're thinking about making an investment, talk us through what that process looks like for you. Yeah. Well, now I have my criteria already defined, which makes it a thousand times easier because as I'm, you know, I don't even know how I get on half these deal lists, by the way. Someone's like throwing my email around, but (laughs) I get sent like, you know, a San Francisco new development deal, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't do that stuff, you know, so I would never put myself on that deal list, but I just know automatically like I flag it out, right? First of all, new development, don't do it. Second of all, California, don't invest there. Third of all, no cash flow. Boom. You know, and like, so just knowing that. So Mm -hmm. when I sat down, it was like a one pager just on a notepad years ago. And I just said like, you know, being able to speak directly to the principals or the GPs was important to me. Monthly distributions are preferred. 
not required, but preferred. I, I just like the frequency because I live on cash flow. Monthly reporting usually goes hand in hand. So that kind of couples there. I like Texas. I like Florida. I like, you know, and so it's just, just that. It's not, again, it's not rocket science. It's just, I, I did take a little time to work through my criteria. And so now as I get sent deals, I can quickly just look at bullet points and go boom, 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 boom. Nope. 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 Okay. Not going to do that deal. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to know anything about the sponsor or anything else, (laughs) you know? And as you get to the point where like I am, maybe you're here too, but I get, God, I can't even tell you how many deals I get sent constantly. I mean, it seems like a daily thing. There's a new deal in my inbox and it's just nice to be able to filter those out because I can't do that many deals, right? I I only do like a deal a month or every two months or whatever it is. So yeah, know your criteria, know yourself. Gotcha. So it starts with knowing your criteria and then say you get a deal and you like the criteria, where does it go from there? Yeah. So then, well, hopefully I already know this group because I've met them or had conversations with them, which is why I'm on their list, you know, because I know that they're doing these types of deals. So hopefully that's already there. If it's not, I start doing my due diligence on the team. Who are these people? This deal seems really, you know, interesting. It fits my criteria, but what's their experience and track record? I take a look at their website. I YouTube them, I Google them, you know, whatever. And then I'll hop on the phone, assuming all that stuff checks out and and seems reasonable, then Mm -hmm. have some conversations, ask my questions, yada, yada, make sure it's, you know, 506C or B, you know, just figuring out the different ins and outs of the deal. And then sometimes I'll visit the property. It just depends. I visited a little more than half of my portfolio in person. I don't always do it. It just depends. I mean, the sponsors I work with over and over and over again, like Ashcroft, I usually don't go to the newest properties that I'm investing in, but I did initially. So yeah, that's kind of how it works. Due diligence phase, ask your questions, look at the docs, you know, the PPMs and subscription agreements and make sure all the ins and outs check out. And then you're sending in your funds last and that's it. Then you're in for the ride, you know, three, five, seven years. Make sure you like the people you're investing with that you get along in philosophy, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's a long journey sometimes when you're not fond of (laughs) someone that you're working with as a business partner, because that's really what it is. So that's right. It's like a marriage. Kind of yeah, like a a short term marriage, which I guess a lot of those (laughs) are. So yeah. Awesome. So you've seen a lot of deals. You've invested in a lot of deals. I mean, what are things that stick out to you as red flags? Are there things that you immediately see that I mean, outside of your criteria, maybe they meet the initial criteria, but then you see something and you just discount it. Yeah, I think professionalism goes a long way. Man, I have seen some like overviews, packages, you know, investment package that seriously, not even kidding you, look like maybe a fifth grader created it. And maybe they did. Maybe they had their kid create it. But it's like such a turnoff (laughs) of professionalism. And then, you know, blurry photos of the property or maybe it's six pages long. You know, I mean, come on, like a typical overview might be 20 to 60 pages. It's going to have enough detail in there to get all your questions answered and and to show that they've really done the analysis, you know, and to show you some visuals and the market and the surrounding employment and the demographics and the jobs. So that's a red flag, right? If it's six pages long and I read through that and I end up with five questions, that's not good. In rare occasions, there was... I should have kept track of this operator, but no PPM. I don't know if that's really ever a legal thing, but they didn't have a PPM. So that'd be a huge red flag. 
always asking about track record and experience, even if the company doesn't have it, like specifically, the individuals might have the experience. I was on the phone with, with a couple the other day that are forming a company. Well, they each carry about 25, 30 years experience individually in the space, but they're forming a company together. So a lot of people are going to look at that and go, wow, this company's only been around for six months. I'm not investing. Well, yeah, you know, maybe give it a shot because there's something behind the scenes there. And that's something I tell a lot of new syndicators too. You know, how do we find investors for our first deal? It's like, can you leverage somebody who does have experience, even if they're a co-GP or they're like a mentor or a coach, or they're going to look over your shoulder and help walk you through the deal. If you can just leverage that somehow and announce that to people, it gives, gives you a lot more comfort than just, you know, hey, we're 18 years old. We went to a course for two days and we'd like a hundred grand, please. That's a little sketchy. So. <laughs> no, those are some good red flags. Anything else? Those are just a few that come to mind. The gut check always goes a long way. Mm -hmm. you know, for me. And that's why I like, I know we're in COVID and all this, but I used to prefer face to face. That's usually how I would meet a new sure. sponsor syndicator. It'd be at a real estate conference or an event or something. And that's how it would start. Well, today, I mean, leverage Zoom, you know, I mean, everyone should be willing to jump on a quick Zoom call face to face, quote unquote. But if not, at least phone calls and like I said, YouTube and stuff, usually, you know, there'll be somebody speaking or something. Just try to feel the person out. What kind of person is this using your old fashioned gut check? And that's gone a long way for me. So if you can do it, do that. Just trust your gut. It does go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Travis, this is great information. It's really interesting. I mean, I don't mean to meet too many people that have been able to take their passive investing professionally and make that into your career. So obviously you've had a ton of success. The last part of the show is just that it's the keys to success. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions really, really to understand, understand things about you and, and hopefully you can help our listeners. The first question is, what's the one question that you would ask a sponsor if you only got one question? I think in today's environment, 2020, it would be how are you being conservative in your underwriting on this current opportunity? That would be number one right now, this year. I think that's really good. How about what's the book that everyone should be reading? Maybe one of those 52 that you read the other year. <laughs> well, one of the ones that I read, well, I read this book a lot is Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. Mm -hmm. It was one of the one of the first books, maybe the first book that he released. So it was like late 80s. But because it's on your mindset and like the human brain and psychology, it's timeless. You know, it's not outdated in that sense. He's not talking about money or something. And that's a great book. Also, I'm not promoting this book here, but <laughs> I just did a book review yesterday, The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. That's like one of the first books I've picked up that's really 100% dedicated to like people like myself that do LP investing and syndication investing. So yeah, oh, very cool. That's a good one too. And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? I don't want to say the ability, but the uh, willpower or something <laughs> to self-educate, right? Like just yeah. stay up with your education, like your self-education. So whether it's books or audio books or YouTube or podcasts or whatever, get a mentor. But you've got to keep up with what, I mean, things are changing rapidly right now, especially this year with stimulus and the ban on evictions and all these, like this stuff's important in landlord tenant laws. A lot of things are mm -hmm. just like constantly, you know, unemployment benefits matter, obviously 
our tenants and their ability to pay rent. So, so much, but you don't have to make that a full-time study. You don't have to be reading every single day for hours, but you know, every week I would say learn one or two things per week about the industry that are worth reading. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really important point, right? I mean, we call this passive investing, but it's, there's some parts that aren't passive, right? You have to own your education. And, and I think in many ways, you have to be just as educated about what's going on as, as the folks who are doing the deals, right? Because how else do you know if you're making a good investment or not? You know, yeah. it's, you can 100% should get a sense of the person and, and have trust in, in the sponsors, but you also have to verify yourself and know what's going on. So I think that's extremely important. That's a great tip. Yeah. Markets change, assets change. We talked about, you know, what if real estate one day was a three or 4% cash flower, which it is in some parts of the world too. Another thing to think about, like London real estate, Singapore real estate, some of those cap rates are like 2%. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd be investing there, (laughs) you know? So Mm -hmm. if you don't keep up with that stuff and you just let that happen, one day you're just looking at this, like it's just not a good risk reward ratio anymore. So you got to keep up to a point. Yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Travis, how can folks get a hold of you? Sure. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Bigger Pockets and all that good stuff. At Passive Investor Tips is Instagram and Facebook. Okay. If you don't want to reach out on social, I do two things. I mentioned that guide earlier, a PDF download. Definitely take advantage of that. It's 20 pages. It's got industry terminology and how to vet sponsors and markets and deals in a lot more detail than what we were able to cover here completely free, no upsell, all that good stuff. And then two, I spend my weeks on these complimentary 15-minute Q&A calls because I do a lot of blogging and videos and reviews and podcasts. People have questions naturally about themselves and how does this pertain to me or what about this scenario or how do I find this or that? I just like to be just a, a reference for people, right? Just point you in the right directions or here's a great book to read or have you checked out that webinar or whatever it is. I'm not affiliated with that stuff just to be a resource. So either mm-hmm. one of those, the guide and the call, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. You can get one or both of those with no upsell, like I said, but free resources for you. Very cool. That's very generous given your time like that. So I'm sure people will take you up on that. They do week to week. A lot of calls. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you, Travis, so much. Appreciate you being here today. Appreciate you sharing your path to being a professional passive investor and giving us some tips along the way what to look out for. I think especially I want folks to take away some of those conservatism ideas about what to be looking for in deals today and, and how to vet out those sponsors. I think the fact that you talked about understanding your criteria and what your goals are out of your investment and understanding that ahead of time to make you efficient as you're looking through deal flow. I think all these were fantastic pieces of insight. So I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Kent. Thanks so much. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit kentritter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.